0: Today I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, speaking with Kevin Addicks of Grow and Fortify. We'll be talking about the Maryland wine industry, the spirit industry, Maryland craft brewing, Annapolis politics, and other things. My name is Howard Fletcher, and this year podcast is called The Number One Two.
1: Why not go downtown for a bucket of apples, mac and cheese in the side. I want to go downtown
0: for a bucket of deck bones. They're right next door to the tasty free. Well, let me take this straight from the website. Grow & Fortified is a new firm that's built on the concept that businesses and industries are stronger when they work together. Grow & Fortified creates, grows, and strengthens organizations and the businesses they support. I had a really good conversation with... Uh, the CEO of Grow & Fortify, Kevin Addix and uh, the work that they do for the Maryland Wineries Association, the Brewers Association of Maryland, and the Maryland Distillers Guild. So without any further ado, uh, here is my conversation with Kevin Addix I want to warn you, uh, and I apologize for this, the recording has some echo to it. We were in a, in, a, in, a little, in a small office, and I apologize for that. I tried to clean it up as much as I could. But uh, I think we got some good things on tape. So here's Kevin Addix. Well, I'm here in uh, beautiful Green Spring Valley uh, of Baltimore County at the offices of Grow and Fortify. I'm here with Kevin Addix. I'd like to welcome him to the show. Thank you very much. And Kevin is the CEO and founder of Grow and Fortify. So to start us off, tell us a little bit about what Grow and Fortify is, what you do, how you came about creating it, all of that. Sure, all, all the fun stuff. Yeah.
1: Well, Grown Fortify is really an outgrowth of the work that myself and my team have been doing for the last 15 years. Um, The first 11, 12 of those years were with the Maryland Wineries Association, uh, working directly with their board of directors to make sure that we were promoting the wine industry, but also doing the things that you need to do to promote the wine industry, which is manage a bunch of events, um, work on the legislative session Mm -hmm. and and try to pass some some big modernizations that have really helped the industry to grow. Mm -hmm. And then about three years ago, uh, going on four years ago now, uh, it occurred to me that with wineries getting into the brewing business, and also into the distilling industry, that um, they needed support from those angles as well. Mm -hmm. And there was not that support network built the way that we built the wineries association. So I talked with the wineries board and uh, worked with them to, to basically start my own firm, zoom out a little bit, start my own firm, bring on the Maryland Wineries Association as a client mm-hmm. rather than working directly for them. We kept the same relationship. We've kept it uh, quite strong and, and have actually grown the wine industry since then. But that gave me the flexibility then to... Uh, Court the Brewers Association and then actually helped form the Distillers Guild to oh, wow. to uh, fortify, that's where the name came from, fortify those industries to make sure that they were strong industries as well. Uh-huh. We had been noticing that uh, while the wineries had been having pronounced uh, successes in Annapolis, the brewers were taking a little longer to get their uh, efforts sent through the legislature. Uh-huh. So. Uh, we 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 have been working with them, and it's it 's been a great uh a great melding of those three industries and and there's much more in common um, mm-hmm. on
0: beer, wine, and spirits than our differences yeah I, I was surprised to hear you say that you helped to form the distillers association, not that you did it, mm-hmm. but the fact that they weren't established because I would have thought that there was probably a richer history of distillery in this state than the other two. But I might be
1: wrong. Well, you're, you're correct up until about 1950. Mm. Um, so certainly before Prohibition, uh, distilling was huge. And of course, brewing was a big deal in Maryland as well, especially in and around Baltimore. Sure. Brewing was, was uh, uh, a leading industry. And what happened with Prohibition is that that basically reset everybody to zero. Mm-hmm. So the industries all collapsed at that point. There was not a wine industry of note before Prohibition. After Prohibition, it did kick up a little bit into the um, 50s and then 60s. Uh, we had the first wineries open up in the 70s and um, uh, go forward from there. I think Bordy Vineyards was the first open in 1945. Yes. They were really the pioneers. Then the industry started growing up around it in the, in the 70s. With distilling... Uh, it really fizzled out. There were some big producers who rectified here. They distilled a little bit of neutral spirit and they rectified here into um, even uh, the 90s and and early 2000s. But in terms of the brands that we know today, um, they all disappeared or were purchased. um, uh, The old brands that were popular were were purchased by out-of-state companies and Pikesville Rye is is probably the most famous brand that's still alive today, not produced anywhere near Maryland. I guess you could say the same thing about Natty Bo for beer. Wow. Um, you know, big name, but everyone associates it with Baltimore, but it's not a Maryland-produced beer anymore for, okay. for years. So the these three industries really have only um, gotten to their vibrant state that they are now in the last 10 to 15 years. And distilleries, um You know, one of our wineries was the first modern distillery, Fiore Winery up in Harford County, Mm -hmm. started uh, distilling from his leftover spent grapes and pips and stalks and skins and juice started fermenting um, grappa. And he was the first one on a very small scale to do it. Then came Blackwater, then came Lion, then came some of the names that that we know in the distilling industry today. But they had not yet formed an organization, Mm -hmm. and we kept in touch with them over the years and kept hearing that there were geez, five or 10 more opening up you know, in the next year or two. And, and so uh, my team and I went to the what would become the founding members and said, let's do this. Let's get this operational. Uh, we can't find record that there was a group before. And, uh, the, the brewing organization, the Brewers Association of Maryland has been around since 1996 and the wineries association since 1984 Mm so fairly modern
0: creations. yeah i was went up to fiori about i guess a couple weeks ago great and uh tried their moonshine yeah that was uh did you try their rye and their bourbon oh yeah i did a little tasting of all of it it was very interesting you know the uh limoncello yeah the whole thing i was i was i didn't expect to even find that there i went for the winery and you know, ran into the distillery. So. Yeah, they're,
1: they're incredibly underrated. And, yeah, and and you know, as long as they've been around, and and as much of a legend Mike Fiore yeah. is, um, people are still surprised to hear about them. So yeah. we we had a staff field trip and, and visited there a couple of weeks ago and had the best time. Yeah, I mean, it's just so it's great, great to see. Yeah the, yeah, the the combination of the wine and spirits, it all seems to work. Yeah. very well together. So, what about yourself?
0: Do you have a background in brewing or?
1: Uh, I my making? my yeah my intersection with the industry is first as a consumer right <laughs> uh, first and foremost as a as a paying customer and then uh, early in my career I was uh, and actually through my degree work getting my master's degree was working on a thesis all about um, wine growing mm. and the environmental impacts of wine growing I was a communication with a uh, major with an environmental um, uh, focus mm-hmm. at, in Colorado. Grew up in Maryland, so I focused my energy on Maryland and got to know the wineries very well through that research and eventually published a book about Maryland wines that is so outdated I won't even recommend it. No okay. There were nine wineries with, with a possible 10th opening up back then, so I included the 10th in the book, and, right. and, uh, and it was a good move. He, it was Deep Creek Cellars he opened up and, and was a very fun addition okay. to the industry, yeah. but now we're at you know 95 wineries yes. in the States, so things are very different now. And I took that book um, and my experience with the industry and um, parlayed that into a deeper relationship with the industry when Mm -hmm. they were first hiring uh, their first staffer. I applied for it, uh, was recommended for it, Mm
0: -hmm. and got the gig, and that that began the last 15 years of fun. So uh, growing Fortify now, the Maryland Winery Association before then, uh, used to do what would be, I guess, best called uh, lobbying work.
1: Would that be correct. Yeah, there was there was a good amount of lobbying that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in the in the last, I'll say fifteen years, the industry went from not being able to have uh, tastings without a physical walking guided tour. Mm-hmm. You couldn't sell a glass of wine. You couldn't sell bottles to go more than one brand, mm-hmm. one bottle per person per brand per year was what the law said. Wow. And, and so that was a major change. Being able to have wineries go to farmers markets was a major change. And these seem so obvious now, but um, at the time, the wine industry was going first in all of these. Breweries came next, distilleries are still pushing for these things, and in a lot of cases, brewers are still pretty bound by um, old school thinking. Um, but these were pretty big pushes. It, it took a lot to overcome the interest at the time, direct shipping, mm-hmm. wine by mail, um, the ability for a winery to self-distribute their products to a store or a restaurant. These were big, brand new ideas. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and that's a good segue to what another uh, issue I want to talk about. But first, I'll say that when I started this podcast, um, my intention was to focus on the Mid-Atlantic region, and that's what I've done. But my familiarity was with Virginia mm-hmm. and the Virginia wineries, and uh, because my girlfriend and I visited a few, a few times. Uh, I knew, I had some relationships down there. I knew some people. I did my first winery podcast with Dave Collins mm-hmm. at Big Court. And um, that was so interesting to me about Maryland, especially being a Marylander and not being familiar with the wine here, uh, that from there I went to Bordy and, yeah. and I've stayed in the state. And universally, when I get on the subject, Laws, legislation, the name Kevin Addicts comes <laughs> up, and that's why I'm here, because I, mean, oh, I, I was like, i got to meet this guy, because they, you know, very complimentary of the... I was going to ask positive. Yeah, yeah <laughs> positive, no, 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 very complimentary of the, right of the here. changes Good. that have been made since uh, the beginning, you know, and that they, they all tell the same story of how it's very challenging not to make the wine as much yeah. as to sell the wine. Yeah. <laughs> that was the challenge. Um, so let's talk about um, laws. Let's talk about some legislation. Sure. Um There is an issue that has been brewing, for lack of a better term. Uh, Beer brawl. Yeah, yeah, beer brawl uh, in Annapolis. Uh, And I think it came to a a crescendo this past spring. Uh, And there are two dueling house bills. Uh, And and please stop me if I I have this uh, misdated anything. But uh, there's House Bill 518, which is supported by the, the craft beer industry. Or the craft brewers here, um, which will make it a little easier for them to sell their product directly to the consumer in wide strokes. That's what I'll say. And then there was House Bill 1052, uh, which does a little bit of the opposite. Uh, It it, it favors, I would say, the distributors in the three tier system. And the three tier system for the listeners being you have the producer, the distributors who are the middlemen, and the retail outlets or the end user, which would be. Uh, either the liquor store or restaurant selling the product. Right. Um, so, uh, tell me a little bit about those bills, and where does Growing Fortify fit in that?
1: Sure, and 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 just just so we're clear, so um, the opinions aren't Growing Fortify. These are uh, for our clients. So we right. Growing Fortify actually, and and this, you know, I, I like to clarify this. So when we're out and about. Working in Annapolis, we don't have our Grown Fortify hat on. Yes. You know, we're wearing the shield and badge and everything else of the Brewers Association or the Wineries Association, the Distillers Guild. Grown Fortify itself doesn't necessarily have opinions about, gotcha. about these things. So, so, you know, with, with the beer law, um, when we began working with the brewers, it became very clear to them, to us, that, that, uh, and to them, that we were really far behind um I, all i had to do was go to my first national conference and meet my peers in other states and when you know we went round table and started talking about what legislation they were working on it was just light years ahead of what we were dealing with and when i started you know digging a little deeper it's because they cleared up our problems mm-hmm. decades ago yeah and when then you figured out well how many breweries do you have in michigan or new york or colorado or north carolina exponentially higher Numbers than we have in Maryland, and it's because it, for whatever reason, the the balance of, of power uh, which leads to the negotiations was very different in those states, and they were able to get further faster with modern laws, not radical laws, mm-hmm. modern laws. Um, we're not asking for for anything radical. We're asking in Maryland and have been asking in Maryland for pretty reasonable things. Mm-hmm. So. You have to go back actually a couple of years uh, if you don't mind me, no, me taking you back. So in in 2016 the wineries came in or excuse me the breweries came in with a number of bills that would have made it easier for them to do business. And one of them uh, was probably the most important back then, and that is the ability to sell more of their own beer out of their tap room. Now mind you, they can't sell anyone else's beer; they can only sell their beer. Right. So uh, they were limited to 500 barrels of beer, which and you can do the math and it comes out to you know, a certain number of, of, of thousands of pints. But when you think of how breweries operate, they're tourist destinations. Mm-hmm. Some of them are community gathering places. The larger ones tend to be meccas where people who are really into craft beer are going around the country and checking off how many of these, they, of these breweries they've been to. They're not going there every Thursday night with friends. They're going in there with a group of people, checking Flying Dog off the list. Hey man, I got a T-shirt. You know, had the great beer, bought my six-pack. Then they go to Victory in Pennsylvania, or you know, somewhere in Virginia or beyond. So, we were trying to go from 500 to 2,000, which seemed at that point to be a a pretty reasonable number. Um, The bill had died two years in a row, died again, Um, and the reason it died was that bars typically bars taverns have this mindset that if anyone is selling a beer for on-premise consumption other than one of their people one of their people is losing out on a beer and that's absolutely not how the free market works yeah so you know on a fundamental level we disagree um But beyond that, the idea that one segment of an industry can regulate another segment of the industry's success. When you think of any other industry being able to make a product and sell their product, even other alcohol producers around the country, these limits do not exist. So, first we were frustrated by this, but secondly, um, we had some news. We heard that some of our breweries were expanding significantly. They were um, planning very large uh, expansions, and so we we decided we were going to put a whole modernization act together. So in 2017, we had a bill that had a wish list of items in in uh, in the brewing world. Um, none of those radical. None of those anything that is not you know 15, 20 year old law in New York, Colorado. Michigan North Carolina all the benchmark states California never been problems with any of them um, they don't impact at all the wholesale industry or the retail industry We put the bill in met with the lobbyists were playing you know the game the way it's supposed to be played and then Guinness announced that it was opening up in Baltimore County mm-hmm. and um, nobody doesn't like Guinness uh, Baltimore County was thrilled about Guinness sure The wholesalers sell a lot of Guinness. The retailers sell a lot of Guinness. And so they took what we were working on, and they took what Guinness was asking for, which was a little bit different, and um, through a series of, of discussions and negotiations, which we were not a part of, they put together a bill that took away some things from our breweries as part of that deal, whatever deal happened. And that would be 1052? And that was not 1052. That was the 12, bill 12. 1280, uh, 1283 the year before. Okay. And and uh, it passed through the House uh, despite our objections. It got to the Senate. We had a friendlier hearing in the Senate and, uh, and a few advocates at the higher levels in the Senate that were willing to work with us. And we were able to get back a few things that we had lost in that house bill, mm-hmm. um, 80% of what we were asking for was not included in the bill. So at that point, it was really kind of an emergency, all hands on deck. This bill's taking us backwards unless we get these couple of things in there. Um, some of the benefits of that bill, when it did pass, and um, we were involved in that final nego- negotiation, it did raise the number to 2,000 barrels. So it gave our smaller breweries and mid-sized breweries some breathing room. Um, it took the hours for all new breweries and cut them from what they would have been to 10 o'clock closing. And that's pretty devastating when you've been working on your business plan for four years and mm-hmm. you're getting ready to open up and you, from time to time, will have hours that open into the, the wee hours, which you were allowed to do yesterday, and now all of a sudden the state tells you you're not allowed to do that anymore. Yeah, There was a real chilling effect um, on the industry. And so... From 2017 to 2018, there was a lot of angst about that. Um, Pretty bitter taste in our industry's mouth from what happened in 2017. Uh, A lot of folks in the house thought they were doing us a favor by raising the limits from 500 to 2,000, but they never understood the full impact of the decisions they were making by taking the hours away and some other things about contract brewing that were in that bill. So there was a lot of angst over the interim. When we get to 2018, which is uh, the genesis of your question, there were two bills, uh, 518 and 1052. 518 was a bill that uh, was put forth by the Comptroller of Maryland, who's the chief regulator of alcohol. Comptroller had held a task force that that consisted of, I think, eight or ten different meetings throughout the summer and into the fall. Task force had recommendations. Um, which which uh, forged and founded the basis of that 518 bill. The Brewers Association supported 518, but um, also know you know the organization knows how Annapolis works and a big bill like that will be hard to pass. number mm-hmm. one. a big bill like that with so much uh, contention surrounding it will be even harder to pass. So BAM put together what we call the BAM Six pack, which were six bills, Five of those were based on 518, and the sixth one had to do with uh, creating a promotion fund, which just about every other state has to help promote beer through competitive grants. And um, push those two bills, those were the two positive bills, 518 was um, uh, killed by the committee, and our bills were held for discussion. Banning bills didn't pass, they didn't die, right. in a year like last year where there was so much uh, angst and contention. Um, uh, not dying was good enough. That's good, yes. That's <laughs> Right, in, in the world of legislature. Um, and then 1052 was a contrary bill. 1052 was basically a bill to come back at the industry and the comptroller to say, we gave you stuff last year. You say you didn't like it, so here's a bill to take it away. Yeah. So which one of these do you want? Uh-huh. Do you want 518 or do you want 1052? And of course the industry wanted 518, the legislature, due to politics, you know, lowercase and uppercase politics, about the control or about the leadership, um, 518 died, 1052 was withdrawn. And um, quite frankly, in a year like last year, like I said, the fact that our bills didn't die and the fact that 5, at, um, 1052 was withdrawn, we take that as a positive. We take that as, okay, at least the legislature, the lobbyists, the other industry groups in the 3-tier system um, weren't going to harm the industry. So there's there's room for discussion. There's room for uh, a path next year. We're already working on our legislative package for next year and and talking with the folks who need to be spoken with about
0: it. Yeah. Well, in the interest of uh, journalism, yeah, I am going to... Uh, I've, I've talked to the comptroller's office. I know that he's pro-518 also. And uh, I... Hope to have him on the show soon. Good. Um, but I'm also going to speak to uh, Derek Davis or, or Talman Branch, hopefully, uh, who are supporters of uh, or were on the side of 1052, um, to get the the both sides of the issue. The reason I wanted to talk about this, um, besides the fact I think it's very interesting, yeah. is I find like a lot of issues the general public doesn't know about. Yeah. And with this being a, a voting year, um, I think it's important that they, uh, they get their voice heard on this issue, mm-hmm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, can't, I can't speak for either side, but for, on the other side, I do know that they bring up some issues like public health and some other things. And if that's something that is important to somebody, um, then they should vote Absolutely. The, the way they should 100%. vote. Right. But I do know that with the brewing industry, in, in other states, I, use, I have to look at other states, especially Virginia, since we're so close. I see what the impact that it's had on their economy and on their tax revenue. And it's all been positive. And so I think that this is something that, you know, whether it's on your a, a voter's radar or not, it should be part of their decision-making process when they go to the voting booth. Uh, or, or at least know the perspective or the state's perspective of who they're voting for mm-hmm. um, on this issue, because it can affect the state greatly. Yeah, I very think. much so. I'm glad, you're, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. One, one thing I'll say about that mm-hmm. is that, that um, there are
1: there were so many opinions and so many uh, accusations and, and, and different postures throughout that whole process, and it would be great to hear... Uh, from the sponsors of all the bills, and you mentioned Francho, and you mentioned uh, Delegates Davis, who's the chairman of the Economic Matters Committee, um, and and, and also uh, Delegate Talmadge Branch, it would be good to talk with them and and hear obviously their their positions and their sides. I will say that in any of these discussions going forward, and there is a task force that's been created, mm-hmm. which um, will be talking about alcohol through a public health and public safety, public policy lens, um, it's gonna be important to have these discussions about the full alcohol industry. You mentioned economic impact. If you look at the economic impact of in Southwest Baltimore, a new small brewery opening up, one new small brewery selling his and her, that's a, a team there, own beer, versus one block away, a liquor lotto store opening up. Two alcohol businesses opening up in that district. Let's collapse those, analyze those, blend them up, look at economic impact, look at public health and safety, look at look at community uh, values in terms of building a center of community and a place that people can go and, and hang out. Let's let's find a way to rate those and create an average because mm-hmm. Everywhere else that we look, and we know it anecdotally from Maryland, but we know it from Virginia and Pennsylvania and Delaware and D.C., the brewers are on the lower end of concerns about public health and safety. Uh And they're exponentially higher than most of any other kind of business in terms of economic development and community development. We're finding that when a small brewery opens up in a part of town that um, may not have been a place you or I might want to live... the economic development in that area changes. Yeah. The sense of that place, and it's not just, hey, look, a business has opened up here. Because there are a lot of businesses that go into these areas, and they're opening up an office or a warehouse, but it's not really a public-facing, community-center-type business. When that brewery opens up, soon you start seeing people come in, and they've said it to me. People come in and say you're the reason why we moved here. Not because we're madly in love with your beer. Yeah. Because you are a light that gets turned on that says, this is a place that is going to be good for a community. This is where we're going to build community. This is going to be, long-term, a place where development's going to occur. Well, that
0: segues no. <laughs> into my, my next question. I, I and, didn't, I didn't <laughs> read my notes. Any yeah, notes. No, yeah, no, no, well. Um, Let's talk about labor. Yeah, Because um, these three industries that uh, Grow and Fortify, uh, is, or that are clients of Grow and Fortify, do have an economic impact. What types of jobs can you the uh, community look forward to maybe attracting there?
1: Well, so, so at the base level, you need hospitality. So you need front of the house staff. You need people to run the tap room or the tasting room. Um, and those are those are good wages. Sometimes they're hourly wages. Sometimes they're they're uh, salaried. Um, there are the sales staff that go outside and sell the product through a wholesaler and, and to retailers. So those are are typically salary plus commission. You have the back of the house staff, which um, uh, tend to be the more technical uh, type staff, either a winemaker or a brewmaster, bre- you know, brewer of, of any kind, and, and the Many breweries, because there are a lot of brewers out there, people who homebrew, people who've taken classes in brewing, very different than distilling and wine. Yes. And, and a lot of that people point to and thank Jimmy Carter for changing the homebrew laws to allow home brewing <laughs> back in the 70s uh, mm-hmm. to create such a culture around it. But you will find that you know, those, those jobs require chemistry, those jobs require biology background because you're dealing with yeast, you're fermenting a product, the product doesn't always want to ferment. You have to know why and and really dig into it. Um, We find that beyond that you need people to work in the lab, Um, you need general manufacturing help, blending, bottling, all those things. I I look at a new brewery like Crooked Crab that just opened up and they've got six or seven people on full-time, the owners plus. And and how many small businesses six months in has six full time employees? So those people live in the community, um, and, and you know I know you're just talking jobs right now, but take that and you know expand that out through the economic impact of having those types of jobs in an area. People want to live close to where they work, especially in places like Baltimore and Rockville and, and Frederick, some of our brewery hubs,
0: uh, and we see that in the wine industry too. Yeah. If someone's listening who is a Maryland resident or a voter, um, if they want to help this sector grow, if they can do anything to help your clients out, do you have any advice for them or anything suggesting to do?
1: Yeah, I, I think we're at the stage of, of general uh, awareness making. And so being a campaign year, um, we've seen that beer has been on many platforms, uh, by, certainly by new folks trying to get into office because they saw what happened in prior years, but even for the folks who are in the legislature who, who by and large, they're good folks who are there for, you know, the, the, you don't run for office without an agenda. They've got a reason to be there. They're trying to get their, um, their pet projects and, and their missions accomplished. What we need to do as a, a general public is make sure that breweries, wineries, distilleries, creameries, you know, folks who make jam and sauerkraut on farms, people who are in that general value-added agricultural industry have a voice. The way you get a voice, yes, there's there's the kind of insider way of hiring lobbyists and those kind of things, but the more substantial way, the more practical way of doing it is to make sure that voters reach out to their elected officials and those who are running for office and just ask them, what's your position on breweries, wineries, distilleries? How are you going to help encourage this industry to grow and prosper in Maryland? like very actively has been done in Virginia, like very actively has been done in Pennsylvania, in New York, in North Carolina, and all the other states that I mentioned, where, where the governor and the legislature are approving millions of dollars each year to go to promote those industries, to go to help them get started, to be put into the small business development fund, to be given out as grants. All those things happen in all the benchmark states that all of our breweries wish we could be like, except in Maryland. Yeah. And so we're, we're really trying to get at that. And look, the, the state where they have, can be have, has been very supportive. State Office of Tourism, Office of Commerce, obviously the Comptroller, um, uh, Department of Agriculture has been extremely helpful in helping uh, get more grapes in the ground. We've got a wine and grape commission. Uh, we've got uh grant and, and uh, tax credits set up for some of the industries that we hope will be expanding. So there are things that the state's doing. But in terms of just general awareness, Virginia puts over one and a half million dollars a year, sometimes up to three, um, sometimes 1.6, 1.7 million, but it's always more than a million and a half. Yeah. Every year for the last as many years as I've been involved, 15 years. And um, at the height of funding, the Wineries Association, through a state grant, got $100,000. Wow. At the height, at the height of funding. Yeah. Virginia just put in you know more than two million dollars for their beer and wine industries and it's going toward significant projects oh yeah helping malt houses get started helping vineyards get planted
0: yeah I just downloaded the Virginia wine app good, <laughs> good. So, <laughs> so they, uh, yeah they, for by the wine Commission by, yes yes they yeah, yeah. and I'd lo- I'd love to see Maryland do that I mean not an app necessarily but to that, do that what Virginia doing yeah yes yes Okay, Kevin, well, uh, with the time we have left, the time we have left, yeah. the mic is yours. This podcast will go up this Friday. Excellent. So if you have any events that are coming up that you'd like to let the public know about or just anything at all, the mic is yours. Please. Well, let me, let me talk about uh, late summer into early
1: fall and, and what's coming ahead. So we've got um, a really cool event for craft beer called Revive. It's a wine and food, excuse me, a beer and food event that is rather high-end chef pairings with each of the wow. beers. It's highlighting last year's winners of the uh, Maryland Craft Beer Competition. And that's going to be at, at uh, a phenomenal location. And I'll give you the details you can post up on the site. Okay. Uh, if you go to MarylandBeer.org, you'll see it. It's at St. Anthony's Shrine in Ellicott City. Beautiful, old-school it's what you think of when you hear about kind of a, a shrine, gothic, yeah. almost uh, cathedral feel. Yeah. yeah, hopefully it was able to avoid yes. the, the water. Yes. Yeah, it was ju- just out of the reaches of the water. Good. So that's one. Um, Maryland Wine Festival is our big uh, showcase of Maryland wine that happens in Westminster on, I believe, uh, the 15th, 16th. That's the third weekend of September. I have my calendar in front of me, so forgive me for that. And then uh, November is Spirits Month in yeah. maryland so it'll be our inaugural maryland spirits month the state office of tourism is sponsoring that nice. so we've got a couple of events set up we've got one uh the first weekend in november in college park at the aviation museum it'll be a a, a very cool event it'll be announced in the next week or two so we've got great events this fall if you if you go to Marylandwine.com, Marylandbeer.org, marylandspirits.org you'll find lots of events that our our individual members are putting together but also the organization and for a lot of people still that's the way that you get to know products is to take a a day or a weekend and you're either traveling to the producers themselves or you're going to an event where we've gathered them together and you can you can try we've seen this with the spirits industry where uh, folks will come into um, one of our distiller events and they're seeing 15 distilleries with three products each that they've never even heard of. Mm-hmm. And that is awesome. That's where we are with distilling, where it is so newly on the scene that it's a surprise every time people go. I just picked up three products uh, at, at distilleries over the weekend that are, are brand new. Maryland's first Absinthe. Who, wow. knew, who knew we needed <laughs> one? But but there it is, Absinthe uh, Nouvelle wow. with the little green fairy on it. Uh, rye whiskey is making such a huge comeback in Maryland and the industry is so new that... Just now, we're seeing two year
0: aged rye whiskeys coming out. But Maryland, just like you're saying, Mexico yep. used to be the capital of rye in Absolutely. the U.S. It was, and we lost that.
1: Yeah. And we really did lose that. And our distillery, Sagamore Rye, um, you know, Sagamore Whiskey in, right. in Baltimore is going to be a, is a huge operation. And once they have their Maryland grown, Maryland distilled rye out, that's going to really take over the East Coast and, and bring back Maryland rye. Until then, we've got a lot of small producers releasing limited batches, uh, as much as they could produce with the funds they had at that time to put them in fairly expensive new barrels and let them sit for two years. They're coming out, and they're selling out. Wow. One weekend after the next, we have a release. It's sold out. A new release. It's sold out. That's great. And then wine and beer, um, such incredible innovations there.
0: Okay. Well, I'm excited. And, uh I know my listeners will be, and I—I um, I know I know one thing about Maryland. We are Marylanders are very proud of our state, and if we have something to back, we back it. So um, I'm look forward to a big future.
1: Well, I am too. We're going to get through the wine harvest and have yeah. a whole new crop of wines to showcase, and yeah. and uh, I hope we have more
0: conversations. Good, great. Thanks, Kevin. A lot, Thank you. Bye bye. Well, there's another one in the books. I'd like to thank a few people who helped make this whole thing possible. First, I'd like to thank my guest, Kevin Addicks. Thank you for your time and your hospitality. I look forward to several conversations in the future. As always, thank you, Mom, for having me, and thank you for being my rock and my stabilizer. The notorious JMZ, Joan Zimmerman, thank you you for your support and your suggestions. Your assistance and your advice are invaluable. And Jack, you're the best pug a guy could ever want. Wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, or wherever, please give us a rating and give us some feedback. It's a very small thing, but it helps us out a ton. And also look for us on our Facebook page, the number one two podcasts and like us and follow us on Instagram as well. All of our music, including this theme song, Tasty Freeze, was created, produced, written, played, supplied, everything by Cadillac Grip. If you're ever in the Denver or Boulder, Colorado area, please go see Cadillac Grip Play. Because if you ain't hip to the grip, you just ain't hip. The number one, two podcast was written, recorded, engineered, produced, and yes, screwed up again by me. I'm Howard Fletcher. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. (laughs) Stay right
1: next to the Tasty free.